my boss was Frank Bynamarama and Frank Frank uh, was the current military dictator of the island. You know, he, he had two coups and his second coup he had delayed by 24 hours because there was um, there was a really important rugby match that was that was that he wanted to go and watch. Today's guest has to be one of the most in-demand speakers we've had the pleasure of speaking to on the Wonderful People podcast. He's achieved legendary status in Fiji and is one of the greatest rugby sevens coaches of his generation. We are delighted to welcome Ben Ryan, who is the most successful men's rugby sevens coach in the world and he's achieved amazing things. And in this episode, I learned so much about taking risks, about how to train up and raise up leaders about finding out about people's motivations and their why. There is so much richness in this episode. And if you're like me, you'll be taking notes as you listen. So enjoy, and please don't forget to leave us a review, share, and subscribe. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast with the wonderful Phil Jones, who is in beautiful Technicolor today. And... uh, (laughs) As always, we have an amazing guest with us, and this is a podcast we've been trying to record for a couple of months now, so we're really, really excited and honoured to have Mr. Ben Ryan with us, and uh, virtual virtual clap, please, everyone. (laughs) If you don't know Ben Ryan, in the next half an hour, 40 minutes, hour, however long it takes, you're going to find out all about his life, and he's absolutely brilliant, and hugely excited to have you, Ben, so welcome. No, it's a a real pleasure to be here, and uh, now I'm looking forward to it. Well, Phil, anything you want to say before we kick off? You're being very quiet. I'm worried. No, I'm just worried that, I mean, our listeners can't see us anyway, but uh, one of us is in black and white and the other two are in bright colour. So as long as you can put up with me being in black and white, I'm ready to go. I just told everyone you were in Technicolor. I know you did, but you were telling telling porkies. (laughs) And it's going to be recorded, that. (laughs) Right, okay. Well, let's, let's start, Ben. First question we ask all of our guests, and, and I'm sure you've got an answer to this. If you if you would be, could be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Anyone? Yeah, so I would have somebody, I'd have a couple of people probably just to make it a bit more interesting. And you definitely need some humour in there and some education and knowledge. So I'd have Bob Mortimer because um, oh. he's probably one of my favourite comedians. I think he would find the funny side to anything. Um and I'd have Sir Alex Ferguson. I don't support Man United, but he's got a you know, he's got so much knowledge that I'd love to try and suck out of him when we're stuck in the lift. And I think Bob would provide the the anecdotes and the light moments, so I might get his guard down for a while. Um, so that would probably be my that probably be who I'd go for. What a, Isn't that a brilliant lift, Bob Ben Ryan, Bob Mortimer, Alex Ferguson, all in the lift. <laughs> I know. I'd love to see Sir Alex actually laughing at Bob's jokes. Because you don't see him laughing that often, do you? But I love him. No, love him to bits. Yeah, no, he's like he's a legend, isn't it? When you when you do think about, and I know you had a question later on about leaders that you look up to, and, and there are less and less sometimes in the sporting world. And you know, some of the guys from back in the day that you haven't just um, shined them up because it's it's in the past, and therefore you know you put rose tinted glasses on. It's very obvious with Sir Alex with his longevity and his consistency on what he achieved and how he went about it. 
I don't think anybody that's not working in high performance wouldn't want to have a sit down conversation with 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 Sir Alex and and yeah and, and gain gain knowledge. It's um, so that's why he would he'd been there. And I hope the mechanics don't come for a while. The engineers, I hope that you know we're stuck there for a while. And, yeah, have uh, you I can ever, really get everything out of him? Have you ever well, met him? No, hmm. I haven't actually. I've 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 got close to my my cousins. I mean, I know you talk about this a little bit later on, but. One side of my family's from Manchester, and you know my cousins in particular are crazy United fans. You know, not only just season ticket holders, but um, you know, Dent, Paul, my my older cousin, you know, he's got every single match report from Newton Heath to wow. you know, present day, and um, and he also writes you know weekly on 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 a blog about United. So it's um it's part of my folklore in family terms and uh and so i thought i might be able to engineer a way through different things you know somebody that knows somebody to get get in front of sir alex at some point but i you know i i hope it happens at some point well you had seven hugely successful years as the england rugby sevens coach well then you took what on paper seemed like a huge risk accepting a job halfway across the world as the coach of the Fiji Rugby Sevens team, how did all that come about? Well, I was, I, yeah, I was coaching England and I'd, I'd been in charge for a long time, almost seven years. And uh, at the start, I was paired up with also skills coach across age groups and the senior England 15s team for, for the scrum halves. So I was traveling all around the country doing that and then England Sevens as well. And we traveled all around the world. But I was... I tell this story as a um, maybe it will resonate with some other people. But when you start, like as a, I was a supply teacher when I left rugby, and you start and you know you haven't got much resource either. Like you don't know that much. You haven't got many experiences. You haven't got much budget. Like you, you're in control. Like when you first step onto the field as a coach, and my first coaching was was um, when I was doing my PGCE, and I was in Kings Lynn coaching under 13 football and playing the Christmas tree formation, which I wish I hadn't. I'd probably prefer to put three at the back and get the fullbacks working a bit harder. But anyway, uh, you're in control, right? And and so that's, that's you can start to put your print on things. And as you get, get promoted and you gain more experience, you go to bigger organisations, um, that changes. And so, you know, to, to use an analogy, that I was a rusty bike at the start, you know, a a three-speeder didn't look very good, didn't go very fast, but I could decide where it was going to go. And if I whacked something, then next time I might be able to navigate my way around it. And as you move up, that mode of transport changes until you go to... I went to England and, and that's a shiny juggernaut. It's big and it's fast and, it, you know, it's hard to change direction. Don't You're certainly not in the front and the steering wheel. You're somewhere out the back and you can't quite see where everything's, where everything's going. And, and you lose some of that edge and some of that autonomy, which I think is hugely important. Um, and I just was getting more and more disillusioned until the point where in my last year, we, you know, I was having infighting with certain staff above me and I wanted to be more strategic and put more planning in place. And I got onto the field to do a coaching session and I hadn't planned the coaching sessions. I didn't know what was what I was about to do. And that is my bread and butter as a coach, not what's going on with the budgets in rugby house. And and that kind of made me feel that it was time to just to move out. And my last game was was the Rugby World Cup in Russia in sevens. And we just won the semi-finals, getting the final, first time in 20 years. And I 
didn't want to be there. Didn't feel any emotions, any elation. And thought this well, is that's not what it's not what I'm about, really. Um, I think if I hadn't, you know, the, you signed non disclosures, and if you, you know I hadn't stepped down, you know, you would have been pushed down, and you know, you, it's a, it's, it was a quite a common thing back then. There's yeah. plenty of people I know that have. have got being bunged a few quid and signed a non-disclosure and uh, and you move on and then a mate said to me on twitter have you seen that fiji are looking for a for a new coach for sevens and you know fiji is the well it's that it's, it's not the birthplace because that's claimed to be you know that's melrose for sevens but it's certainly where the best moments in world sevens have emanated from over the last two three four five decades you know, we go Wasseli, Serevis and all the antics of Fiji in the Olympics, but they hadn't won a world title um, for well over a decade. They'd only won one when two superstars were playing at the same time, William Ryder and Wasali Serevi. So, I, and I'd played against Fiji and I coached against them. And I thought that I should just put my hat in the ring. And so I emailed the Fiji Rugby Union. They said, you've missed the deadline, but we know who you are. So let's have an interview. A bit like this, although I was... In, in on the breakfast the breakfast table back at home in southwest London at two in the afternoon Suva, which was two in the morning in, in Fiji. In, in wow. sorry, two in the morning in Southwest London. So I, I downed a couple of espressos, I put a tie on for the first time since I left school, <laughs> um, settled in like I did here, ready to go. And 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 nothing. They no one appeared on on Skype. And um, two hours later, eventually they did. Um, I'm not quite sure why I stayed on the line. But I did because there was something in me thinking that they were gonna, they were gonna, they were gonna get online, and they did, and they shone my face, projected it onto the back wall of the, of the office at the CEO's office in Thirty Five Gordon Street in Suva, and um, Manasa, the, the the CEO at the time, welcomed me, and then lots of people were peering into the to the camera to say bula, say hello, um, and they were asking me questions like, you know, do I know Johnny Wilkinson? Have I met the Queen? <laughs> And, uh, and I stayed. I stayed awake, which I thought was 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 a success. Put the laptop down. Woke up in the morning. Checked um, a couple of things in on the Fiji Times website um, to just get a bit more knowledge about Fiji. I hadn't lived there. I hadn't been there before. And and the headline was the CEO that interviewed me got sacked straight after my interview. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's that. You know, I'm. This is destined to be for somebody else. And um, I diverted my attentions to 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 a job that I'd been offered with um, the EIS. And then I was in a restaurant in Richmond two weeks later and my phone rings and it was a Fijian plus 679 number. Pick it up and I say hi and they say, Bula Ben, this is Berlin Kafoa. I'm the, I'm the new uh, chief executive of the Fijian Rugby Union. We've got a press conference here in Fiji in 20 minutes time. Uh, and I, I said, that's great, um, Berlin, but you know, what's it about? Um, why are you ringing me? And, it, and he said, well, it's to announce you as a new head coach. Uh, of the Fiji Sevens team and I said all right do I get a say in this and he goes 20 minutes so I put the phone down um I had a big swig of the red wine that was in front of me and I was beginning to do the whole you know what positives and negatives you know what's what's the right thing to do here and if I'd been given a day I would have said no because I didn't I hadn't discussed salary and discussed duration of I didn't know what it'd be like to live in Fiji, what my budget was, who my bosses were. But there was a sense of, there was a gut instinct that, that I knew I needed to do something. I needed to make a bold move in my career to remind myself on why I do what I do. And 
breathe life into kind of that energy that I probably lost in that last year. So I rang him back, said, yeah, I'm in. And he said, great. Can you get yourself to Fiji in the next five, six days? Um, if you can just, you know, sort your flights out, we'll, we'll pay, pay you back when we, when we, when you get to Fiji, still waiting for that check. And, um, and, uh, I arrived and I went to the West coast and Nandi international airport, hoping that, I, you know, it's a long flight, three flights, thinking I could just get my head down in the airport hotel and then meet everyone. But I opened the, the doors were open for me from the aircraft and I was live on telly for the next couple of hours, um, interviews by, you know, Fiji TV flown across on a small plane 26 minutes into the capital Suva where I met the um the government and everybody around the Fijian Union and over the next 48 hours I was to find out that you know they haven't got any money they've gone bankrupt um that World Rugby had frozen money as they were looking into where their their funding had gone to and they disappeared that most of the players from the previous season had gone overseas because they needed work they needed to get paid so they had disappeared that um that the that my boss was Frank Bynamarama and Frank Frank's uh, was the current military dictator of the island. You know, he he had two coups and his second coup he had delayed by twenty four hours because there was um there was a really important rugby match that was that was that he wanted to go and watch. So he waited and watched that and then the following day he he uh, he had a successful coup, took over Parliament and government and um and ran around the country and has done ever since and um part of the job of being prime minister and it's the same in or has been the same in Samoa and Tonga if you're prime minister or head of state however you've got there you're also president of the, of the union of the rugby union and it shows how high they they put rugby and in, in on the islands so he was my boss and then he eventually you know not not long after that put his brother-in-law as uh, my line manager who was chairman Francis Keane um who had um, gone to prison for for manslaughter? Uh, he, he had kicked and punched someone to death at a wedding, and um, yeah. So uh, I have uh, you know, yeah, a little bit different from the RFU Phil. And it's a little bit different, although maybe not in some ways. But but and and uh, and and that was my introduction, really. And then I like Formula One. Uh, the way they do their races is similar sevens, right? They have ten tournaments around the world. You go off and go around the world. And you have different stops. And the Australian leg was going to be the first leg that year in the Gold Coast. And the team had been picked by, I think, eight or nine selectors. None of them I'd ever met. And I looked down the list of the team and I only recognised one name from my previous years coaching England. And um, and I thought, right, well, I've got three or four days with them to train them before we fly to Australia for the tournament. I better do a fitness test just to see what levels they are. So what I can do with them over the next few days. And, and then we did a yo-yo test and... and I won the yo-yo test and I wasn't fit. And that was my first alarm bell. And that was because it is actually like, I'm a big believer in thinking upstream and maybe I'll, you know, I'll, I'll reference that a little bit later, but don't just look at what the problem is. Like they're, they're, their scores were bad and just think, well, they need to get fitter. Think about the reason why they've come to training unfit. And they had just thought, well, the bloke that might be the new coach, he might be from... Another team that you know is is my right our rival team in, in the club scene in Fiji, and he's not going to pick me. Or from a certain province or region, there was still people being picked because of what family they were from and different things like that. So they were like, "Well, what's the point in trying to get fit and impress someone that's not going to pick me anyway?" So I might as well just wait around, see who gets picked, and then we'll get on with it. <laughs> but the uh, the runway was too short really for us to do anything around the fitness. So we did that, and then the one player that 
I did recognize his name. He hadn't turned up. And so I got my team manager to drive me to his village and I found him in the, on the floor in the village. I said, Eli, what's going on? You know, you know, you're mistraining and, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, I, I've, I've been on the floor. I've been lying on the floor for the last two days. I haven't been able to stand up. Someone's put a, a, a black magic curse on my legs. And, um, uh, you know, at Twickenham <laughs> in the physio's room, that was not an excuse anybody used. And, uh, so, and I thought, look, I'm at this phase where I got to understand the culture and I can't start telling people what to do at this stage. I needed to gather information to make decisions. So I wished him luck. I mean, he was our kicker, so it wouldn't have been much use. And, and then we went to, went to Australia. And we played in the first tournament. We lost our first game to Wales and then won our next two scraped through. Can't remember who against. And we then got through as best runner-up to play England in the quarterfinals. Um, my old team that I finished pre-season with at Bath University with all the, the amazing facilities they have there. And we got smashed. And the following um, morning, I got a lift to the airport, Gold Coast, by the new CEO. Dropped me off. I was going to fly home pack all our stuff and then return back uh, you know, a few days later to live in Fiji. And he just said to me, Ben, look, one more thing. Um, we, haven't, we haven't got any money to pay you. And I thought he just meant the weekend. <laughs> they said, no, look, we haven't got any money. So you're going to have to do this as a, um, as oh, a volunteer gosh. for a few months until we can work out a way to pay you. Um, <laughs> so, so when I got on the first flight, a lot was going around my head. Um, not all positive. But the three or four sessions I'd had with the team and I could see they weren't fit and, you know, they, they, they would not care about some of the fundamentals like line out scrum kickoffs, organizing defense. I mean, it's boring stuff. They didn't want to do any of that. So they would add it onto the, you know, the Friday before playing on Saturday. Um, you could see that, that actually they had raw ability, like huge amounts of talent. They loved training and playing. It filled me with joy, like looking at them. They were grateful. They were like sponges. You gave them a new skill and they, they understood it very quickly. And I thought, you know, if we can just give the fundamental the foundations here, then we could be onto something. So, you know, I planned the next three years, knowing that we we had got this this vote by the IOC to allow us to go into the Olympic Games for the first time again since, you know, the, the Olympics back in Paris, where they played 15 aside. I think there's only three teams that were in that last Olympic sport. Um and uh, and, and that began my journey really for the next three years. Wow, that reads like something out of a, that was like literally the, the you know, the kind of um, overview of a film, wasn't it? That was like the summary of like, there's got to be a film. When is the film coming out? Come on. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there is actually. And um, I, I don't know if you, if you know how it all works, but we're actually, we've got a new production company that have been, have got the rights for the last six months now called Ride Back, the Californian company, Hollywood company with Dan Lin, who's uh, just a visionary in, in, in America. And, and so they kind of put the band together, you know, they get the right directors and producers and script writers and, and that's how they're doing it. And when the directors, yeah, they, they do, a, they pitch to you really and say, this is their vision. It does read like, it does, you know, you, they're telling me these stories that you actually are real. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's that that's the process Amazing. we're in now with the film. Um so yeah, looking forward to 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 seeing that turn and also make sure that we highlight and herald the people that are really were important in that time, you know, because I got a I, you know, as as the head of any program, you, as a leader, you get you know, you get some of the plaudits as well as the the stuff that when it doesn't go well. But my manager, my team manager, Rapati Carvesi, my captain or say Kalunasa, 
you know, they're just magnificent people and their, their stories are remarkable and you want to kind of tell their story and tell the story of Fiji uh, more than my story, really. So hopefully the movie... That's amazing. Isn't that incredible? I've got so many questions. There's so many different... Yeah. Like, there's so much to unpack here. But I think, you know, in the interest of, you know, other things I want to discuss, one question I've got, Ben, is it's kind of like you're speaking about this, this you know, going to Fiji and, and, and sort of taking over this team and the, 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 the sort of nuances around that from, in comparison, obviously, to, 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 to Great Britain and, and to the England team. But... What was some of the what was the biggest adjustment? Like, you know, you're adjusting so much you know, as as a person, as a leader, as a coach. As a, you know, what what was the sort of biggest adjustments for you, or some of those adjustments? Yeah, it's a great question, and I've been, I have been asked this in different ways in, over the years, and I, you know, it percolates as well because there are some obvious things, right? Like you can say, like richest union in the world to the to the to the to, to a union that has no money. To you know, I was putting the, the petrol in the van to get the boys to training, and you know, and all sorts of basic things like water, um, you know, a training kit, stuff like that. And so that's that's quite obvious. And then so I was going from well, I was living in Teddington, you know, which is a lovely part of Southwest London, but it's the nicest place <laughs> to live in London. And you go from there to a third world country where you can't be sure that there's you know most weeks there's some sort of electricity short out, and we have our cyclone season and. Um, you know, there's, it's a third world country. Um, so there's all those things. But I think because in general terms, I was going from such a different environment on every level, everything was kind of vibrating around you. And so you just had to go with it. You know, you can't start at an early point trying to pick off and work out how you're going to do things other than just go, just don't make any decisions early. Start to take things as you see them, um, listen as much as you possibly can. And then, uh, and then just don't have, don't start projecting your thoughts. Don't start doing what we all worry too much about and thinking, well, what's going to happen next month or next, or how am I going to, how am I going to hang on for this three years here? When, you know, those first couple of days happen like they did, you just stay in the, in the present. And I think one of the things that I've been good at since I've had my time in Fiji is being so much better at being in the present because that's effectively what the entire nation are, you know, they're, they're grateful for what they've got. They're never sure what could, could be around the corner. So they live in the present, something that we don't do enough of in, in the modern society. And so that was probably the, the biggest single thing that stayed well, with me. And did you learn anything about yourself that surprised you? You know, switching in those environments in every way. Yeah. I think well, like when I was with England, you know, and, you, and I was the first international coach to use GPS in 2006 and I was quite well known for being that kind of geeky creative using tech and you know I still consult for Nike in, in those those areas but I was doing that because I needed to kind of get every ounce of ability out of the England players and get a competitive advantage and that was our strength whereas with with Fiji it was different and it was about people and I think if you're not careful if you don't have either the experience or the emotional intelligence or understanding of your ego, then you get blind spots. You know, we, we, any place I've ever been to, whether it's the best sports team in the world to, you know, a, a failing school in, in the city of London, you, they all have, they all have gaps in performance. doesn't matter where you are. We have gaps in, in what we know and what we don't know. And occasionally we're really good, our best versions. And other times we're not. And I think what I learned was that I didn't have enough 
um, I didn't. I wasn't good enough at seeing when I was starting to lose altitude as far as being as good as I can. And so with England, there were times where I was dropping to a level that I was, you know, a five, four out of 10, and I wouldn't have known it. And it wasn't until either you crash or somebody tells you about, you, you know, that it's unacceptable or you're below standards. And so with Fiji, because you're in the present and I just had, I've just got my spark back. It then led to, um, led to me being really good at that and getting that good and, and knowing that I did have the skills that, that were needed to do what I was going to do in wherever I was going to go. But Fiji just made me clarify all of that and, uh, gave me the tools to be much better and much better with looking after my ego, staying in the present, understanding when I'm starting to underperform and being open enough for when people tell me that to take it on board and not shut them down. Well, brilliant. <laughs> brilliant answer. I was thinking that they, they were a bit slow on paying you when you got there <laughs> and for quite a while yeah. afterwards, but I, I hear they yeah. gave you a three-acre plot of land with its own waterfall. What's all that about? And do you plan to go and live there one day? <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, I, like, I didn't, like I said, I didn't get that pay for the first few months. And then weirdly as a side story, they, when the budget comes around in Fiji, they put a line in the budget for any overseas coaches that are, that are coaching international sports teams in Fiji, there would be salary available from government. And so the government ended up paying me for the, for the rest of the time I was in Fiji. And then it's led to, you know, the next guys that have taken those roles, getting paid, you know, good salaries by government. And they brought in netball, cricket, football coaches to just increase the, the standards. And then, yeah, when I, when I finished and we won Olympic gold medal, you know, one thing about Islanders, you know, they're very generous with their emotions and gifts. You know, if they like you, they really like you and they shower you with stuff. So, you know, I was given all sorts of different honours and awards and part of being given chiefly status in Fiji uh, was, you know, you've got to own land. And so um, I didn't know it, but one of my friends in Fiji went up with the chiefs where I lived in Sarua, up into the, the hills. And he, he found a, ate some, some acres of land that he thought it's a place that he'd like one day to build a house and to, to retire in. So, you know, get a nice place that, that Ben could build on in the future. Um, and yeah, in the, I, hope, I hope we do something with it in the future, whether it's for something that I build personally or, you know, we had an idea about having a school up there as well and doing some work oh, wow. up there. So we'll see, but it's, it's, it's way down the track. Um, yeah. And at the moment I know, you know, that the, the, it's all there safe and I get updates about what's going on in the province and in the Latinera chiefly clan. Um, so yeah, no, that's all good. And is it true that Buzz Aldrin actually rang you? It's a half true. It's a half true, Phil, because I got given a got given a phone with a message to me, but from a from a journalist that he had contacted. He was there watching, um, and he he wanted to pass on congratulations, and uh, and then I replied through that phone to say thank you and everything else. It was, I mean, as as you guys know, you know, for these things like the Olympics, all sorts, all manner of people turn up that you have no idea. You know, follow sport. You know. Um, um, the actor, the Hollywood actor McConaughey, uh, was was pitch side with the American team during the games. You know, because he rocked up, loves going to these things as holidays, and you know, being who he was, Matthew McConaughey thought, "Oh, I'll wander down the pitch, and I don't think anyone's going to mind if I sit in their dugout." And uh, so it, it was a very cool few days in Brazil. And, and just uh, one more little thing before I pass to Dan, but the 
I actually saw the note that you've got inside your book. The, the seven dollar note with your picture on it. Tell tell us how that happened. Yeah, so it was about um, six nine months later after we'd won the Olympics. I was back. I'd been I'd gone to work in New York and then just back in London and. Uh, I'd, a couple of things happened. I got a phone. I got a phone call from the um, the guy that was in charge of the Fiji and the mint, um, the uh, raw mint, and um, he said, told me this, you know, told me that he wants to tell me something that they want to recognise the team and my achievements by having a seven dollar bill. They thought it'd be cool to have a seven dollars because you know for sevens, and yeah. that, they're pretty sure no one in the world had a seven dollar bill anywhere. <laughs> um, and then a fifty cent piece as well that they they wanted the head of the fifty cent piece to, to, to be my head and and then the team on the other side, um, and uh, and I said this is cool and, and so they they did it and then I got flown over to the launch of it where they put I think two million dollars worth of seven dollar bills into circulation and about the same in fifty cent pieces and they keep doing it now because they're you know they people want them and they keep them and so they keep pumping them out and. Um, uh, weirdly, on this last part of the flight, um, a short flight from Australia to Fiji, the bloke sitting down next to me um, kind of kept looking at me, and 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 then he said, "You know, you so and so." He said, "I'm." Uh, he was French, and he said, uh, "I I designed your uh, I designed the, the fifty cent no piece, way. you know, so I was sworn to secrecy <laughs> and everything else." It was very bizarre, and I hadn't seen it because I went and see it all, and he just got out this 50 cent piece and showed it to me. And I was like, man, this is so weird, um, but amazing at the same time. So yeah, that, that's how, that's how it, how it happened. Um, that, that's happened and, to yeah, so it's, few um, people in the world. If you think about it, like how many people in the world has it ever happened to? It's amazing. Amazing. Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Ben, I want to I want to kind of sort of segue a little bit in, in terms of because I know that your your previous experience and your current experience, you know, is wider than just in just rugby as a sport. And then we're going to sort of move on into business and leadership later. But in terms of the skills and the kind of everything you've spoken about, how did you how does that transfer from that incredible experience where you took Fiji to Olympic law and everything else you achieved? How does that transfer into the other sports that you now coach? Yeah, it, again, a, a cracking question because, you know, on first sight, you know, there's lots of nuances and differences between, well, every sport really. And that's the attraction of coaching and being involved in sport that there's so much difference within sports. But there's also some some underpinning, particularly in team sports, but also in, in individual sports where it's still there's still preparation and competition and recovery and um it's about the climate the culture the environment that you're creating for the everybody whether that's a huge team of people or whether that's a single athlete there's 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 still a process to to create it and before it became kind of cool and i didn't call it this you know with psychological safety was was a big hot top you know it's now you know everyone talks about it about how you need autonomy and safety and you know belief and 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 purpose and achievements, all these things. But for me, it was really important to create an environment where people felt they could be their best version and they could say what they wanted to say. And that doesn't mean you've got a soft environment where people are just, you know, running around in the fields. 
So it, it means that there's you know clear black and white that have been agreed with what the parameters are around it, and then inside that you've got people being allowed to do their thing, and and they've got a safe environment, and and effectively that's kind of my the start point for for when I work anywhere that you know is the safety to you know, people feel that they can be at their best. What's stopping an individual or a team from being at their best, and how can I help nudge that? How can I help coaches be their best versions? How can I accelerate? The stuff that I was going through where I wasn't good enough at seeing when I was losing amplitude, how can I help that with an athlete or a coach or a team? And so you you build up like your network. I've got a, I've got I'm really lucky with the network I've got with the people that I've I've built relationships with over the last two decades. You plug into that to learn. You get more learning from various things you do, and then you start to find a bit of a niche in what you do really. And and so that's that's kind of that's where I am. It's it's plugging those gaps so every like i said everyone has a has gaps in performance and culture and i hope i can help them see those and that and then find tools to be able to to narrow those gaps and i find it fascinating i love it it doesn't always go down well with coaches i was coached a couple of weeks ago where they got a man sent off they went down to 10 men they lost one nil and i was like i've had a great night tonight this is brilliant <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to say to to a manager that that you know that the average Lifespan's about 14 months, I think, in the professional football. Um, but genuinely, you can see growth sometimes. And I think that that other piece of it is the up-managing bit. So, you know, I joke around about the dictator and the, and the convicted murderer and, and also joke around a little bit about how I lost my love of the game in England. But both those moments were around not being able to up-manage well and then being able to up-manage well to allow, you know, the, everything to work. And... That's really important, particularly in professional sport where the board, the owners are often detached from actually what's going on and they will only ever look at the outcome, you know, what's the score and they won't go upstream and see, okay, things are building. We understand why this is happening. We're in it. We're behind them. They often have these knee-jerk reactions that you lose any cohesion, any collaboration and they go around the houses by sacking someone, paying someone off, starting all over again. And you don't have that understanding. So I hope some of the lessons I've learned and then the stuff I've, I've done subsequently can help to also help that seam. Just be, I call them seams, you know, so you've got your seam between your board and maybe your head coach or your head coach and your academy or the academy and the community. They're seams. And, and if you get those seams wrong, or you don't pay attention to them like any, anything, a seam can just pull away. And before you know it, it's broken, it's detached and, you, you know, you've got to, you got you got to do a job on sewing it back together, or you can make them really strong. And in fact, you know, like British cycling, use them to make them more aerodynamic, you know, and even better. And so I love looking at the seams because often we don't do enough of that. And so coming from outside us uh, um, into a sport where I don't know, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be a hands-on coach in football or what, what, any number of sports really. But I can add, I'm not a threat then. So the managers and everyone else and the staff can be a lot more open to me because they know, well, Ben doesn't want my job. You know, I don't want to be a mm-hmm. set-piece coach or manager of a football team. But what I do want to do is help them get better. And, and who do you personally look up to inside and outside of the sport? Uh, you've got to be careful sometimes. The heroes, you know, sometimes there's people, the heroes you make don't always level up to who you expect them to be. Um, I had that conversation with, a, with the Arsenal under-15 coach yesterday who I'm, who I'm mentoring and we were talking about a very famous player that was in another sport 
that was his, you know, he looked up to and, and when he met him, it was a very different experience and totally changed his perspective on, certainly on one side of him. Uh, I think, I think I look up to, I take bits out of people if that makes sense. So if, you, if you're looking at Klopp, for example, I've never met Klopp. Um, he's got a copy of my book, so I hope I do meet him at some point. And I know a couple of, of his staff members. And so you're always looking at it and you don't see inside the camp. But from what I see, I see his enthusiasm. I see his personalization of how he treats people and individualizes people. And um, I'd love to know more about that. And I find that great under the greatest amount of pressure. He is retaining his authenticity, he's being himself. And then I look at someone like Pep Guardiola. And I know from people that work with him how he really is important about alignment and trust and creating one club. And he cares about what's going on at academy level and speaks to academy players. And he's got, you know, he's he's got his emotions channeled really well, and he's a, a brilliant thinker. And so that there, there's bits there, and I go, oh, I'd love to plug into plug into that. Um, and then, you know, uh, um, a few years ago, I remember having a long sit down chat with Gregor Townsend, and when I was doing a review for Scottish rugby, and I love talking to him because of just his clarity of thinking, and I could see, you know, he's a world class coach that's going to get people behind him. And even though at the time they were going through a bit of a rough patch and they didn't come out of the World Cup, um, you could see that actually the embers there were burning away and that they had a good man at the helm. And so there's, there's, they're all over the place. And um, yeah, and, it, and outside, of, outside of sport, there, there's a lot in, in the business world and in the, in the volunteer world. And perhaps the people that have said all of that, but we don't spend enough time looking at the people that are day-to-day on not on the wages that any of those people that I've mentioned are on, but are influencing and inspiring young people. So, you know, the teachers and um, the, 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 the grassroots coaches and those people that are doing ridiculous amounts of time for not a lot of money and inspiring people and are helping them to jump up the ladder to then, you know, yeah. be the stars that they could be. So, yeah, having been a teacher, I know how hard teachers work, particularly in the state sector. And you know they 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 do some marvelous miraculous stuff that they don't get applauded for because no one there's not got they don't got fifty thousand people and sky cameras in their in their classrooms, um, looking at how good they are, but they're doing stuff that's just as miraculous. awesome. Can I can I ask you a, a quickie? Your I grew up with the Manchester United team that had Dennis Law and Georgie Best and Bobby Charlton, but the guy that managed them and the guy that was. Ferguson before Ferguson was Sir Matt Busby. And mm. I read that your dad actually went to visit him in hospital after the plane crash. Uh, tell us yeah. about that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it did. So look, my dad passed away when I was quite young um, and he had a very colourful um, life, really. Um, you know, he was 18 in 1945. Um, so he had to, you know, he went out into the Far East and he was, when the Japanese were were about to surrender. He was going into prison of war camps and, um, you know, seeing what he saw and all the horrors of that. And he had, you know, he said to me, you know, he had nightmares for the rest of his life on, on those sort of things as an 18 year old. And he was, you know, back then, you know, now they would say it's PTSD and all those sort of things. When he came back to the UK and went back to Manchester and started studying, um, he's a, he was an engineer originally in the, in the military. Um, he, uh, he, he uh, got got collared by his Irish Catholic family. So Catholicism was always there on Sundays and 
And then Opus Dei were in the rearview mirror. And if you've heard of Opus Dei, they are yeah. like the special forces of Catholicism where, um, you know, they really do get into you. And he became, you know, part of Opus Dei. And part of that was like, you know, he would visit people. And when he saw that, you know, that obviously what happened on February the 5th or 6th, was it 1958? Yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he wanted to go to see Matt Busby in hospital and, and pray with him and see him. And so him and his mate, when I think they were about late twenties, early start 30, I think, um, he went and he, and he, and he, and he saw him. And, uh, I don't know much more than that. I don't know what conversation, if any, they had, but I know he got bedside and said some prayers and, oh, uh, and he, you know, and, and there were quite a lot of people in Manchester that were doing vigils around the hospital and stuff like that. Um, after mm. the Munich air crash and, uh, yeah, so so he would tell me tell me all of that sort of stuff as a young kid, and um, right. and would tell me about you know Duncan Edwards and that team and how they put it back together, and then I would read a little bit about it. And because when I was a kid, even though we were living in Brentford, he would take me up to some of the, the games at Old Trafford, and we'd stand in the Stratford Road end. Yeah, um, I'll keep my mouth shut because my accent's not <laughs> a particularly strong northern one. Um, and uh, and so yeah, as a young kid, that was that was United. It was there was a lot of it, but we lived around the corner from Brentford, and so like my first game, I think was eighty eight or eighty nine FA Cup. We played Man City, who were down in the leagues with us then at Brentford. Brentford won three one in the FA Cup, and, and that was my first game. And I thought, look, this is a club that's around the corner from me, um, where my roots are, and I, you know, that's the club I support. So, you've just um, you've just I answered, still got a soft spot for United. <laughs> you've answered my other question though. Why why you ended up supporting Brentford if you were born in Wimbledon? But you've just answered it. You grew yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, Wimbledon. I, I I do some work for Wimbledon, um, and uh, I love their story. And I was born there, and I actually went to school there, but only because it was the only state school, pretty much the closest state school that played football, uh, played rugby. Um, that I could go to. So I'd go from Brentford, get a bus to Twickenham, get a train to Rains Park, and then get the 200 bus up to, to the school in Wimbledon. Um, and then my mates also went to watch Wimbledon play in the 80s. And obviously, you know, they had pretty cool, crazy gang and Vinnie Jones and John Fashionew and yeah. Laurie Cunningham and Alan Cork and all those sort of people. So, I, you know, I'd, on Saturdays, occasionally, I'd go and spend some time with them because um, it was cool and my mates were all doing it. I only had a couple of mates that supported Brentford. Um, but Brentford kind of remains like a constant, if any, you know, I'd be getting grief there that I supported Brentford and, oh. you know, and all my other mates, cause we were down in the, you know, third, fourth division for most of my supporting life really. Yeah. Um, can, can I so yeah, one? that's the journey up, but yeah, doing I, all right I, now. I've got, a, I've got soft spots for United and for Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, we're doing all right. Got a tough game at the weekend against Palace. I think it's probably a, not a bad thing. We're out of the cup. Oh. I was going to say one thing. Your your mate Kit Taylor told yeah. me that when you played rugby together as young lads, that your dad would always turn up just for the last twenty minutes of a game. Well, is that true? Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, I don't know why it was the last twenty minutes. <laughs> and then he'd, 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 his vocabulary was pretty limited. Um, he would just shout "tackle, tackle, tackle." Really, that that was generally it. <laughs> I do remember, and I don't know if Kit was in the changing room. But we, after after a game, we came in and I changed room. We had, I hadn't played well, and um, he came in and said, "You know, son, I think maybe you should think about retiring." <laughs> I asked that. <him. laughs> <laughs> but he, he was pretty honest about how I was going. But yeah, that's, so that was him. So Kit, Kit will have some fond memories of my dad because yeah, he was he was always there with his 
with his Mac on and that's what he said. Kit said in a good way. Turned up in a trench coat, twenty minutes from time. <laughs> that's it. <and> just <laughs> yeah, he did. He? Yeah. <laughs> and occasionally gave you a clap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you could get in the clubhouse afterwards, and you know, um, he would have had a beer, or later on, there would have had oh, a cup of tea. So, that's yeah. brilliant. I might try that with my twelve-year-old. He's got a rugby, he's got a rugby tournament on Sunday. I'll see how he does afterwards. I say it's time to retire. So. <laughs> No, what, ben, I, want, I mean, there's so much talk about around the sport and, and, and obviously you know, huge experience and passion there. I want to translate that a little bit into business. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are, you know, agency owners, business owners, and everything you're saying, like, I, you know, I'm sitting here absorbed by it. But I want to ask you a fairly sort of direct question, you know, because A, because you're involved in this world, I know you spend, you know, a bit of time working with business leaders on that. But what do you... All that knowledge, all that success, how does that translate, in your opinion, to motivating and unleashing performance within teams and business? Now, how, how have you seen that work? You know, is it direct translation or is it a different set of dynamics when you're in business? There's, there's some commonality and there's some very big right. differences. You know, that in sport, you know, if, if a player's not playing well, then we, we drop him and... Or, or transfer him out. You know, if a colleague's not working well, you can't sack him. Uh, you know, HR's going to be straight on to you for that. And you have to go about it in a different way so that the cut and thrust around that is is different around how you manage people. But I think the general awareness of your behaviours as a leader is, is really important. And so, like, it works every way. You know, I, I mentor some, um, some people in business, like a couple of CEOs and also... Um, a lot of my work with HSBC as an ambassador is in the corporate sector and doing some different work around collaboration and inclusivity. Um, and then on the opposite side, you know, I have an executive coach that comes from a business background that, that coaches me. And I know a couple of managers at the top end of football that have business mentors, you know, not, not for their business stuff, but to help them have a different perspective on things. And I think that's really important because it, you know, it just gives you more information on what you're doing your behaviors and how you can learn from them so there's there's definitely that on that one-to-one and that's the same for mentoring whether it you know whether it's a footballer that i mentor or manager or someone working in corporate and then it's still around culture and environment because ultimately although the measurements you know a bit firmer in business around you know whatever your your profits and your quarterlies or your retention rates which is a really one that i focus in a lot on because i'm like if you create a really good culture and you get people that are like looking forward to working for you and have got a shared identity. They care about who they work for, which is no different to a football club, right? You want you want a football team or a rugby team to be those players to really care about how the sports feel about you, about, about the players that played before you, about you know the the how the how the club is looked upon. The same for what same for corporate. Then then you make sure that if you get all of that right, then even from a purely financial term, you're gonna have people that want to stay there. Um, so you're not your your retainment rates are high, so you're not having to recruit all the time and spend your money there. You're not having to retrain people. You don't you lose your IP from going to opposition. In fact, you might get IP because everybody that's in the same sector are thinking, have you heard what they do? How they look after their people? How the bosses are inclusive? Um, how they really do support you? I'm going there, and so the ripple is not one that you go right. There's X amount of money that you I'm going to make. I'm going to help, but actually. Once they understand this, then they can see that this is only of benefit. And that's the overlap. That's the culture piece where there's, you know, you've still got your individual nuances around, 
around how companies are and how they're set up and same for clubs. But the core of it is that is people. Amazing. Brilliant. And just a kind of question alongside that, Ben, just really interested early one you were talking about, and you mentioned it a few times, sort of mentoring others, and you mentioned the Arsenal and the 15s coach, particularly interested in that, make sure that they've got a great next generation team. Um, <laughs> but you, I got I got an interesting story go about on, that, Ben, actually. That, you know, I don't know if you've been at the training ground that, that Arsenal is next to, like they've got an academy one yes. and a senior one. And uh, the academy have got their pitches there and they've got blocks of flats. That's right just out the back. And there's a rumour that Man City have got a one-bedroom flat there that they just, uh, you know, they, it means they can keep an eye on who's playing in the games. And it's obviously a rumour, so yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah, you know, please right. nobody get on to me we about can this. Confirm but the it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot it of does, sense, right? They can literally watch the young'uns. Just keep Yeah, keep there's a couple that have gone. Boys. Um, and girls. Um, so question around that, though, you know, he's mentioned it, you know, a couple of times I said about young leaders, but what would be some of your your key takeaway pieces of advice for any good leader wanting to inspire others? Um, listening is, is something that I work on all the time. And it's not, you know, just a listening as a transactional level, you know, so you can answer someone's question. And it's not really the listening bit as far as you're listening to understand. It's getting deeper than that, starting to really feel the environment and the culture and the, and the, and the temperature of where you are and who, how that person's feeling. And it's really easy to be the other way around to talk way too much. And, and sometimes there's a place to, to communicate and tell stories, but there's also a much bigger place to be listening, a, a good listener on those levels. And once you do that, then things like being open-minded just come naturally. So, you know, that, and open to, to, to learn new things and being adaptable from your listening skills. Consistency, and how you behave consistently. And I think it leads into like, you want to give energy to the people that you work with in the organizations, but you can't do that if you don't have your own energy levels high. And so you've got to have energy to give energy. And I think that's really crucial. Um, and so a lot of the work I do with, with, with leaders and with athletes is making sure that they've got their own energy and they understand how they can keep it, how they can foster it, what things they do that drain their energy. Like it might be, trawling through social media if they've just lost a game um how that can affect it not i'm not just talking about you know what they're putting on their plates it's far far more to it than that and i i think the third thing would be um instincts because if you've got the other two going on like you you're actually really listening and you're consistent and your energy levels are, are good then i think go on your instincts you know because um uh, it's helped me out a lot when, when you when you trust it. And there's no getting away from the fact that some people are very good at certain things. You know, I've met a lot of people that are world-class assistant coaches, world-class under 10 coaches, and that's where they want to be. They understand their niche and they have a slightly different type of leadership skills. But and then there's the ones that are the leaders of poor programs. And I think I, I don't think you can, my view is that you can definitely improve everyone and make everyone a leader. But there are certain natural leaders that that it's inevitable that they're going to be leaders. And a good example is Thomas Frank at Brentford. Um, I, I knew him when he was assistant coach, and it was very obvious that he was a he was a co right. head coach, you know. And and they had Dean there as well, who was an, who is a, an amazing manager and a brilliant team. And they had two, probably got another assistant, Brian Rima, that's also a leader. And so it's obvious that that they've got a set of skills that are to be a head coach. So that. 
you know, a leadership bit as well as what type of leader are you? Are you someone that actually doesn't want to be front of house? You want to be a, a second. You want to be an age group. You want to be, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think then that leads into the skills. That's element. brilliant. There's probably a book just in that answer alone right there. That's excellent. And Ben, just we, we're talking about obviously, you know, just mentioned younger people and, 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 you know, we've linking it into the last couple of years, which have been hugely challenging for a lot of younger people in terms of their own physical activity, mm-hmm. ability to express themselves physically, whether that's through sport or other physical activity. And actually, Sport England did a uh, recent survey which highlighted that 55% of children are not active enough, according to the Chief Medical Officer guidelines. So I suppose a question for you around that. What's the role, what role do you think, or do you think coaches play a role in encouraging young people to engage in new physical activity or sports? They, they definitely do, and they can ignite an enthusiasm. They can, by their positivity, by um, understanding how it can impact positively in a young person's life. You know, and it might not be that they've seen that kid and thinking, do you know what, he's going to go to Arsenal Academy. But they might think by him doing this and his or her self-esteem going up, you know, grades are going to go up. They're going to be attending more lessons. It's going to lead to those other ripples. Um, I think I think it's tough being a, a, ki- a kid growing up at the moment and getting... Um, availability of things particularly like a 90% of kids that are in state schools you know and I, before lockdown I've worked for Safer London in the ment- mentoring um, I remember one of the kids that I mentor um, in he lives off the Cali Road in North London and he said he, he's had a school trip once that you know went to visit Saracens now this kid's 15 6'4 100 well, kilograms you know he, he looks he looks like he could be quite useful at, at rugby, and he and he hit listened to it, and he went to the ground. And he's going, oh, I like look at this. This is all right." And he's like, "But there's nowhere, no opportunity for him to actually where he lives off the Caledonian Road. You know, he's close to the Emirates. Um, he can cycle his bike, but he actually can't play rugby there." And then you start to delve a little bit deeper, and you have conversations with him, and he's, you know, his school had a a kid. I think it was Tottenham actually that had gone on and, and broken into the first team squad, and he comes back to the school to inspire. Now, he said, you know, it's great that there's a kid that's gone there, you know, arrives in his car and all that sort of stuff. But he said, I want, I want to hear from somebody that's got a full-time job, that's like got a trade and how they got that. Like, how, how did he, this guy become a full-time electrician? And he's got his own van and he's got his own salary. So I, I want to know that. I want those people to come forward. And so I know the journey and I can help plan it out. And so I think, you know, sometimes we've got to reverse a little bit and think, how do you increase opportunity? And some of it is by um, praise and positivity and encouragement. But other times it's purely by, there's no, there's not enough resource. You know, the after school clubs have disappeared, the playing schools, the fields have, uh, are harder to get. There's schools finish early and someone like, someone like, I can't say his name, someone like one of the kids that I mentored, you know, he'd got no interest in being in, in gangs, but his pure size of him and where right. he lives puts him as a target. You know, unfortunately, his, his his brother was was murdered last year as well in gang related. Again, not, he he, had, he wasn't in a gang; he was just in the wrong place and get into an argument. And so, those sort of those those moments where after school, before it gets dark, there's very little opportunity for some of these kids to be able to do something constructively, either after school activities or after school clubs. And so, there is more chance for them to to make decisions that aren't in their best interests. So I think that's a real thing for that, and 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 it, I also look at the 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 upstream stuff like 
even like a PE teacher spots a kid really good at PE and doing really well at football and lines him up to go to a Sunday league team or um, and that kid might not be able to afford a, he's embarrassed because he can't afford football boots so 30 quid pair of boots is going to stop him going on Sunday because he's embarrassed doesn't want to turn up with trainers or his mum's got to take him and there maybe they're a single parent and that means they've got to either get an Uber or they've got to get someone to look after the other kids and there's a small cost but it's enough to stop the playing field getting levelled and so that sort of stuff I I think we need to do more about it's those small entry points that a lot of people like Sport England and others have seen that they are that you know that they, they can really stop someone's someone's critical path to just doing what they want to do and that's that's an example of sport but it would be no different for music or or, or or other pastimes or hobbies. Yeah, Ben. Those when you spoke at Sports Podge last year, your your talk was incredible. Well, there were two guys that got up and spoke after you. Uh, and that was Jason Hill and Chris Hoff. And, you know, one of them was the policeman and the other yeah. one was a volunteer. But they they've, they do what you're just describing is required, like creating yeah. safe places for kids in rough areas where they've got nowhere to go on a Friday night. And they've created this thing where they've got a safe place, football fields, where they can go and play. And, and they reckon it's helped in loads and loads of ways. But one of the ways is just that, if kids know each other from the different postcodes because they're playing football together, <clears throat> they're less likely to get involved in being stabbed, you know, if they're going to a different area or across the wrong street and so on. But it does seem to rely on volunteers so much, doesn't it? People like that who are doing it in their own time on a Friday evening. And yeah, it, it does that. It, it does, yeah. And like you've just given good examples of the ripple effects of like creating that and then potentially down the track, saving someone's life and, you know, all those sort of things. And like Jason, yeah, Jason messages me, messages me a lot. Oh, does after, he? Um, oh. I'm sure he messages you a fair bit as well. Um, yeah. And like, I need to get down and see some of his stuff and I just haven't been able to do it. And uh, he is a real, yeah, what they do are, are heroes and um, and they've done it off, the, off their back because they've seen that there's some action and they're prepared to, you know, yeah. Well, put their put their put their mouth where you know actually walk the walk, uh, and and, we, and and yeah. So they they you know when people do it, you see the positivity around it. I just think collectively we need to do we need to do more yeah. uh, around that. But you know to to help because and you know and it's not it's not I'm not denigrating PE teachers because some of them will do after school activities and everything else. I know that, but they're under pressure and stress, and and so it's hard for them also to be supported to be able to do a wider program to allow these kids to have more opportunity as well. So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's just, it seems to be something that hasn't got as much cadence recently as, you know, it, it was starting to build some momentum and people were starting to see that there needs to be something physically done. And, you know, for lots of reasons, the last couple of years, stuff's dropped off. So, so Ben, I, I can actually see you and Dan next to each other. And you look about 10 years younger than Dan. But apparently you turned 50 last year and uh, I'd love to yeah. know what, what's Thanks the so next chapter? <laughs> what's the next chapter for you, Ben? It, it, I think I'd hope it's, 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 it's making a difference at both ends. So I'd like to do something at the, uh, at that end around helping level the playing field. Um, and then I'd like to do continue and do more at the very, 
spiky end of elite sport. Um, and, and that's a selfish point, I guess. You want to validate what you're doing. So if you're you know, helping them form cultures and environments and performance frameworks that are giving them consistently high performance and everyone's enjoying it and, they, and it's inclusive, well, you want that to be shown. You do want them to be successful and you want to be part of that. And that's, that's selfish. But when you're sitting in the stands and you know you're part of a team that's you know, just scored a great goal or made a great track back or got promoted or won the league, you can't get away from the fact that that doesn't make you feel good as as it does at the other end where you might have helped someone avoid going down a slippery slope or you've given them an opportunity or you've helped be part of a project that's created more opportunity for for stuff so so it's those both ends really Phil I've been like 10 years time I can look back and be proud that I've managed to affect things in, in that way brilliant I'm the man. Well, just a couple more questions, really. I could talk to you all day, Ben, but I realise we, you know, we're going to have to cut fairly soon. Uh, quick question. Going back to the film, going back to the movie, who's playing you? <laughs> oh, no idea. No idea. Um, I don't know if they've got that, yeah, that detailed yet. Um, I, they, they always have some ideas, but no, it's, uh, I, I, you know, Ginger's always made employment, so hopefully there'll be some out of work. Ginger actor that, that suddenly thinks this could be my time. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And um, well, just, I think just final question from, from me. You know, as an agency, we're all about making sort of complex things wonderfully simple. And that's obviously sort of what you've been doing as well with coaching over all these years. But what's one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler? Uh, being successful. I think, you know, I think it can come down to that. Like, I, I sometimes amaze myself at how people manage to put obstacles and issues in place when they're not needed. And so success, collaboration uh, and working together, I think can be, a, a, can, be, can be done simply if everybody's alike, everyone's together, understands it. And that, that goes back to my listening well, communicating well, being consistent. I think you get all those things right and none of this stuff by the way costs any money you know that you know you can you can be successful and you can collaborate with each other and work together um and it won't cost you a penny if you get it right but the but the ripple effects are great and i just think we overcomplicate it too much too much noise not enough signal um and actually it's yeah it's it, it can be a much more simpler process well, as you guys know with the work you do ben it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to spend this time with you thank you so much no, I've loved it. I loved it. I love the questions and thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.